everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page, where you do get early access to content and exclusive content. Link will be put down in the show notes. So for this episode, I wanted to talk about a piece that Tyler Cowen released back on January 1st about what he feels his ideal future of libertarianism would look like. And before we get into this piece, um, I mean, Tyler Cowen is libertarian adjacent-ish. I mean, I don't know if you would entirely call him a libertarian, but he is somebody that has been around for a really long time. So it's not like this is coming from a place of complete ignorance as to the libertarian movement or the liberty movement in general. And the other kind of disclaimer I want to put on this, and this is something that I think kind of gets lost a little bit right now, is that not everybody who takes the, the, the term libertarian and applies it to themselves is an anarchist. There are still minarchists. There are still people who go even further than minarchist as far as endorsing some level of state or government, however, which way you want to look at that. So when critiquing this piece, or at least looking at it and dealing with the ideas within it, I I think a lot of people, well, insofar as so many people have even talked about this, I'm really surprised this hasn't kind of gone around the libertarian Twitter sphere as much as it has. But there are ideas in here that if you are more of an anarchist or more more lean towards that sort of bent, a lot of this is going to seem like just complete no-goes for you. But I want you to bear in mind that not everybody is quite there and there are people who do still feel like the state does have some kind of legitimate function and that the government does serve some sort of legitimate purpose. So not to say that I agree with what Cowan writes here, but just bear in mind that there are people who would be more receptive to this than they would to, say, a straight-up anarchist message, which is what a lot of libertarianism is pushing right now. And I'm I'm on the fence as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's kind of another conversation for another day. So let's go ahead and get into Tyler's piece. The title is, What Libertarianism Has Become and Will Become, State Capacity Libertarianism. Having tracked the libertarian movement for much of my life, I believe it is now pretty much hollowed out, at least in terms of flow. One branch split off into Ron Paulism and less savory alt-right directions, and another more establishment branch remains out there in force but not really commanding new adherents. For one thing, it doesn't seem like the old-style libertarianism can solve or even very well address a number of major problems, most significantly climate change. For another, smart people are on the internet, and the internet seems to encourage synthetic and eclectic views, at least among the smart and curious. Unlike the mass culture of the 1970s, it does not tend to breed capital L libertarianism. On top of all that, the outmigration from narrowly libertarian views have been severe, most of all from educated women. All right, let's let's kind of back up and deal with this bit by bit. As far as the idea of the libertarian movement being kind of hollowed out right now, um, I do think it is in kind of a weird place where you do very much have two camps. 
Like that's not a lie. And anybody who spends any kind of time on social media in libertarian circles, you can't argue that that's true. And there's not a lot of middle ground between the two camps. And there's reasons for that, that I won't really get into here. And it's just stuff that I don't personally agree with and I don't personally participate in, but I don't really want to drag anybody else for doing what they do because you you do you, but sometimes maybe think about what you're doing and kind of how you're representing yourself and representing the movement. Anyway, but there is, I do think, this kind of hollowing out. Now, where we start to get into kind of where the meat of Cowan's argument starts is that libertarianism does not have answers for certain things. He cites here climate change. Um, I would counter argue that there have been ideas put forth for the free market to handle climate change. Whether or not you buy into them or whether or not you even buy into the concept of climate change at all. I feel like there's plenty of reasons to support certain actions that would impact climate change that don't necessarily have solely to do with climate change. Like there's other beneficial reasons, but there are kind of free market solutions out there to addressing climate change that don't involve state interference or state regulation or state imposition. So I'm I'm not entirely sure that that's a super relevant argument to make, but libertarians don't often don't make the best attempt to kind of present our solutions. Sometimes we kind of get stuck doing other stuff. So maybe that's part of the problem. As far as the online culture, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. Um, There is certainly incentive for what Cowan has, I think, very politely called synthetic and eclectic views that doesn't necessarily lend itself to a lot of libertarians because we don't do the emotional thing. We do the logical thing. And that's not typically what gets rewarded online. I mean, I I would hope that that would be more interesting to the smart and curious as opposed to the emotional shit. But I, I mean, I'm not an idiot. I know what gets likes. I know what gets retweets. I know what gets popular. I know what gets you popular online if you choose to engage in certain activities. So there there might be something there. And he does pick that back up again later on in this essay. So I'll kind of leave off on discussing that here to discuss it there. But the last part about the migration out from libertarian views, especially from educated women. Now, I will always be the first person to joke that libertarianism is a sausage fest. I will be the first person to make that joke. Trust me. I know. I'm here. I go to conferences. I go to forums. I go to events. I notice the male to female ratio. It's a little skewed. But that topic, and especially the topic of quote unquote educated women, I mean, that's, that's such a loaded term. And I don't really like that he used it here. I'm assuming he means college educated women, which that's, there's plenty of other ways to be educated. And I, every libertarian woman I've ever met is a very intelligent woman. 
very educated in our own way, whether you went to college or not. But that's not the point that Cowan's trying to make. The point that Cowan's trying to make is that as it stands right now, libertarianism does kind of have a problem with recruiting and keeping certain sorts of people. And the topic of libertarianism and women and why there aren't more women libertarians is one that I have grappled with doing content on probably ever since I started doing this podcast, just because the topic, it just doesn't fit on my brain. It requires me to think about a lot of stuff that I really just find to be deeply, deeply annoying to contemplate and think about and try to parse out. But perhaps someday in the future, I will do an episode on it. But if I am going to torture myself to do this episode that I've avoided doing for almost two years now, it's probably going to be a Patreon exclusive. So you're going to have to pay for that. Because like I said, I just, I hate this topic. I hate it. Hate it. But I suppose at some point in the future, I will have to address it. So anyway, Moving back to the piece, there is also the word classical liberal, but what is classical supposed to mean that it is not questioned begging? The classical, liber- classical liberalism of its time focused on 19th century problems, appropriate for 19th century, of course, but from World War II onward, it has been a very different ballgame. I agree with Cowan that classical liberal does not apply to anything in the here and now anymore, but not for the reasons he cites. To me, that term has just been bastardized to the point where it's almost as if anybody who claims that they are a quote-unquote classical liberal, they're speaking solely in the realm of speech issues, which classical liberalism dealt with a hell of a lot more than that. But it's been reduced down to this, this thing that almost doesn't even have definition anymore. So... I don't think it applies anymore either, just not for the reasons that Cowan cites. Along the way, I believe the smart classical liberals and libertarians have, as if guided by an invisible hand, I see what you did there, Tyler, evolved into a view that I dub with the extremely non-sticky name of state capacity libertarianism. I define state capacity libertarianism in, in terms of a number of propositions. Number one, markets and capitalism are very powerful. Give them their due. Okay, that's kind of basic enough. Number two, earlier in history, a strong state was necessary to back the formation of capitalism and also to protect individual rights. Strong states remain necessary to maintain and extend capitalism in markets. This includes keeping China at bay abroad and keeping elections free from foreign interference, as well as developing effective laws and regulations for intangible capital, intellectual property, and the new world of the internet. If you read my other works, you will know that this is not a call for massive regulation of big tech. Okay. When I personally use the words capitalism and markets, and I'm, this is, this might be just me interpreting it this way. When I use those words, I'm thinking strictly in an economic sense. And All capitalism is, and all markets are, are people exchanging goods and services with other people. That's it. It, Whether it be to people, to companies, to nations, whether it's you exchanging your money at Whole Foods for groceries, or just whatever, just basic transactions. That, to me, is capitalism and free markets. Nothing about that, to me, requires a state to help it along at all, 
let alone a strong state. Like, capitalism can exist without a state whatsoever. Because that's all it is. It's voluntary exchange. I, I don't see where you really need anybody to enforce that. And if you do, that's not necessarily something that has to be happened on, like, a strong state level. There's plenty of other remedies and how if something does go wrong, you can address them in other ways that don't involve a state. So I, just, I do not agree with that assertion at all. Now, when you take this move from needing a strong state to extend capitalism in markets, which again, I don't think you do. I think that can happen organically all by itself. Doesn't really need anybody's help. Now you start to pivot from making this argument that, well, you need this strong state to do something with China and to, I, I'm not entirely sure what exactly. I mean, I know China is supposed to be the great menace of the 21st century. I'm not entirely sold on that, but okay. I mean, I guess if you are, there you go. As far as keeping elections free from foreign interference, I don't think at this point, if, if, if you even believe that foreign interference is a problem in our elections, which, I mean, this is a topic that goes all the way back to 2016 and did the Russians interfere and Facebook ads and bots and blah, 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 blah. Even if you are of the opinion that that is a problem, I don't see how the state solves that. Honestly, I don't see how they solve it without being entirely heavy-handed. And while Cowan here points out that he does not use that as an argument for the regulation of big tech, I've not heard anybody who makes the argument for regulation of big tech that has not incorporated that argument into their argument that you need the state to do something about the internets and the, the Twitters and the Facebooks because of the foreign interference. It's just like, no, um, that's no. I, just, I, I don't even see how they could without being incredibly, incredibly overbearing and overreaching in order to solve this problem that is debatable whether it even exists. And as far as the topic of intellectual property, I will defer to people smarter than I am on that topic. But the whole idea of intellectual property is something a bit controversial in libertarian circles, shall we say. Um, if you really want to know more about intellectual property, um, Stephen Kinsella is the person you really need to be listening to and not me because I'm just not very well versed on that stuff at all. But even then, like, even with as much state control and interference into these sorts of things as we have right now, these things are still happening. So wait, I'm not entirely sure why I would or anybody else would think that more state interference is going to fix this when the current level that we have has not. And it's not like they haven't interfered. So I'm, I'm just, I'm not following that line of thought. Number three, a strong state is distinct from a very large or tyrannical state. A good strong state should see the maintenance and extension of capitalism as one of its primary duties. In many cases, it's number one duty. Uh, I've already made my points about how I feel capitalism does not need a state to exist at all. Whether a strong state being distinct from a very large or tyrannical state, well, 
Um, I mean, I suppose it can be. It's traditionally speaking not been. It's traditionally speaking, even when you start with a small, strong state, it tends to grow, which is a lot of the problem that we have now in the United States with our government is that we did start with a strong, small government, and that was the idea. And now we have this Leviathan that we have right now. So, I mean, I, I understand I understand the minarchist argument on this, and I understand the anarchist argument on this. Mainly to me, it's just the degree of what you're personally comfortable with. Some people aren't comfortable with anarchism, but I think we could all agree that the idea of a strong, small state is kind of an oxymoron. Like, it just, it doesn't, it, it doesn't work that way. I, I wish it did, but it doesn't. So, moving on. Number four. Rapid increases in state capacity can be very dangerous. Earlier, Japan, Germany. But high levels of state capacity are not inherently tyrannical. Denmark should, in fact, have a smaller government, but it is still one of the more freer and more secure places in the world, at least for Danish citizens, albeit not for everybody. Okay, so in the beginning of this, he points out, and I'm assuming what he means by earlier Japan and Germany, is he's talking about the fascist governments that existed pre-World War II. So yes, obviously, when you ramp up state capacity, you do open the door for tyrannical states, be them fascist, be them communist, be them whatever you want to call it. You do open up that door when you start enabling states to have strength that they will have power and that they may use that power or that a person or group of persons who have a specific intent in mind get a hold of that apparatus and very bad shit can happen. So... It that's always something to think about. And the thing he references here at the end with Denmark, uh, the albeit not for everyone, that's in reference to how Denmark has treated immigration, especially Muslim immigration into the country. And I could do a whole damn episode about how Denmark basically handled this all sorts of wrong. Essentially, just to sum it up here, for all all the, the wonderful freeness and wonderfulness of Denmark, that doesn't apply to Muslim immigrants. They have been put in ghettos that now the government is trying to break up these ghettos, even though they created the ghettos. They're basically treated as second-class citizens. And that's a lot of the reason why you kind of have that Islamophobia and a lot of the problems that are inherent in Denmark and a lot of other European countries where you are having this quote-unquote Islam problem that a lot of it is state-generated. And so, again, when you have the state, especially if it's going to be a strong state, if it's going to be a state that dictates to people, especially in this particular instance of Denmark, where you can and cannot live, because that's essentially what they're saying to Muslims right now. It's like, okay, well, we put you guys all over here, and now we want to break up these ghettos and make you move here, there, and everywhere. And it's like, why didn't you just let people live where they wanted to live in the first place? Like, you could have solved this whole problem by not interfering. It's it's real easy. Real easy. And it's also an example of what happens when a state interferes, realizes, oh shit, we fucked up. Now we have to interfere again to try to fix this fuck up when all you had to do was not fuck up in the first place by not interfering. So, yeah. Not really the best argument for why you need to have a small, strong state. Because even then, they can still screw up horribly. 
Number five, many of the failures of today's America are failures of excess regulation, but many others are failures of state capacity. Our government cannot address climate change, much improved K-12 education, fix traffic congestion, or improve the quality of their discretionary spending. Much of our physical infrastructure is stagnant or declining in quality. I favor much more immigration. Nonetheless, I think our government needs clear standards for who cannot get in, who will be forced to leave, and a workable court system to back all that up, and today we do not have that either. Those problems require state capacity, albeit to boost markets, in a way that classical libertarianism is poorly suited to deal with. Furthermore, libertarianism is parasitic upon state capacity libertarianism to some degree. For instance, even if you favor education privatization, in the shorter run, we still need to make the current system much better. That would even make privatization easier if that was your goal. Okay, so here's my thing. And here's a lot of minarchist slash anarchist thought here. If we have given the state decades upon decades upon decades, and God knows how many numbers of dollars, I don't even want to know. I'm sure it would put my jaw on the floor. But if you have given the state all of this time, all of this money, and we still have the systems here that we have, how much more time and money do you want to give them? Like, how long do you have to perpetrate something before you admit it was a failure to put the state in charge of these things because they are clearly not capable of performing the tasks currently assigned to them? So why, why would you, why? Like, I, I just, it, and that's something that I, I have a problem with a lot of like democratic socialists and stuff too. It's like, if you're going to complain about the way government is and you don't understand that the answer isn't going to be more government because you're just going to get more of what you've already got, I, I'm not understanding your line of thought. Like, do you, do you think it's going to get better if there's more of it? Because we've increasingly had more of it and it's increasingly gotten worse. So what point do you, what point do you put the cap and say, no more, no mas, this is, this is done. We're done doing this. And as far as trying to, especially making the argument about education privatization, the whole reason people make that argument is because of the K-12 system and how it has failed a good chunk of students. As some would say most students, some would say all students, depending on your personal kind of barometer of what you consider success or failure with public education is concerned. Trying to do harder, if we just do more government harder that it will make the things better and then somehow that will get you to privatization that that makes no sense because if by some miracle we found the the number we found the number of years and dollars that we have to give to the federal government to make k-12 education better then the argument is going to be well then why would you want to privatize look we fixed it this is this is fine right now why why would you want to change the system like, you're not going to change the system by doing the current system harder and better. That's, that's, you're just going to get more of what you got. Like, I, I don't understand that concept. But moving on, um, I'll say number six, but I'll move on past it. But I will cite again the philosophical framework of my book, Stubborn Attachments, A Vision of Society for Free, Prosperous, and Responsible Individuals, which is back citing one of Cowan's books, which... I will freely admit I have not read, so I cannot comment on, so we're just going to move on to number seven. 
The fundamental growth experience of recent decades has been the rise of capitalism, markets, and high living standards in East Asia, and state capacity libertarianism has no problem or embarrassment in endorsing those developments. It remains the case that such progress, or better, could have been made with more markets and less government. Still, state capacity had to grow in those countries, and indeed it did. Public health improvements are another major success story of our time, and those have relied heavily on state capacity. Let's just admit it. I will agree that the growth of capitalism in markets, not just in East Asia, but globally, has been one of the most underreported stories possibly ever, because as even in the past 10 years, even in the past decade that we just exited, the amount of people who were lifted out of poverty and had their living standards greatly increased by the spread of capitalism has just been tremendous. So billions, billions of people now no longer live in poverty because of the spread of capitalism and free markets. And that is something that I think we as libertarians need to emphasize on an almost daily basis to try to combat these sorts of ideas that somehow capitalism has ruined everything. And it's like, no, it's made things tremendously better than they were even 10 years ago. And even even then, things were pretty good compared to the 10 years before that and the 10 years before that. So it, it's just, it's been this upward tick. And even Cowan admits that maybe in the lack of government intervention, there might have been even more productive. There might have been even more wealth created. So yeah, I agree. Like maybe there would have been more. Who knows? You can't really argue a negative. So, but I mean, it, it's, it does stand to reason that the more of the capitalism that the people got and the more free markets, then the more wealth that would have been created. But I mean, obviously, every government puts caps on things depending on what kind of government you have and kind of how restrictive they are and all that stuff. And there's a lot of different ways that this, this is handled in different countries, especially in Asia. But yeah, the acknowledgement that, yes, things have gotten better because of capitalism and markets, mostly unfettered. I mean, you, you can't argue that. Like, clearly, when you get the state out of the way, shit gets better from an economic perspective. So, yeah, <laughs> that's what we're saying. That's all we want. But he makes the argument that state capacity had to grow in those countries, and indeed it did. Okay. Maybe if you want to make the argument that if you're taking a country, say, from second world status to first world status, you're going to need to do things like build out infrastructure. You're going to need to have certain systems put in place that can only be done by a state. Okay, if you want to make that argument, I can understand that. I, I can understand the idea of having... A, a strong small state to do those things. But then again, that would also be kind of reliant on an idea that I make fun of in communism, which is that you give these powers to the state, the state does the things, and then the state goes away. The state never goes away. It stays there and it grows. So there, there's a trade-off there that, like I said, I, I'm not entirely comfortable with the idea that the state stays small and mighty. It tends to become big and mighty. And in some Asian countries, that has happened. So, I mean, there's 
there's trade-offs to everything and you really have to think it through before you make that decision of how you want your country to kind of be governed and how you want things to be built out. And especially then going forward, once the things are there, like, okay, well, now, then what? And as far as bringing up public health improvements, the vast majority of health innovation has taken place in the private sector. Now, that's not to say that there aren't grants and subsidies and whatnot that you can get from your various governments to help make that happen. But one of the biggest problems in healthcare, especially in the United States and globally, when you start looking, well, actually not even globally, this is a United States problem because other countries don't have this problem. Innovation gets stifled because of the state, because we have these processes that if you want to bring a new drug to market or you want to bring a new piece of medical equipment to market or you have a, a new way of doing something that you want to start doing it this way and popularizing it, you don't get to just do it and then that's it. Like there's a whole government process that you have to go through and it costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time and it kind of hampers a lot of innovation, especially when you have smaller companies who don't have that time and money. So State involvement in the public health sector and in healthcare has honestly been one of the biggest impediments to having better, cheaper healthcare. So again, I, I would like the state to get the hell out of that and, and let people kind of figure their shit out and let things come to market so that maybe we can have that breakthrough thing, that breakthrough drug, that breakthrough medical device that fixes cancer or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or whatever. So again, moving on, the major problem areas of our time have been Africa and South Asia. They are both lacking in markets and also in state capacity. Africa and South Asia are very large areas with very many countries and very many problems that I don't think when you look at why they are the way they are that you can solely look at it through the lens of they just need more capitalism, which I mean, they do, but there's a lot more stuff going on there. I, 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 I don't think making a blanket statement here is a super good one. So moving on to number nine, because this is the one, this is the one that kind of gets me. State capacity libertarians are more likely to have positive views of infrastructure, science subsidies, nuclear power, require state support, in space exploration programs than are mainstream libertarian or modern Democrats. Modern Democrats often claim to favor those items, and sincerely in my view, but de facto they are very willing to sacrifice them for redistribution, egalitarian and fairness concerns, mood affiliation, and serving traditional Democratic interest groups. For instance, modern Democrats have run New York for some time now, and they've done a terrible job building and fixing things. Nor are Democrats doing much to boost nuclear power as a partial solution to climate change, if anything, the contrary. Now, I want to take the last part of that and address it first. His critiques here of modern Democrats are true. I mean, there certain things are top-level concerns for Democrats right now, and right now it's not kind of infrastructure and science and, and going to space. It's, it's a lot of other different things. But Here's here's kind of my thing here, and especially nuclear power. Like, 
every climate change bill that doesn't include nuclear power can get the fuck out as far as I'm concerned. But I want to go back to the beginning of this. State capacity libertarians are more likely to have a positive view of infrastructure, science subsidies, nuclear power, and space programs. A libertarian who has positive views of infrastructure, science subsidy, nuclear power, and space programs, there's already a name for that. That's neoliberalism. That already exists. And this is what kind of cracked me up about this. I'm like, so what you're wanting to do is redefine libertarianism as neoliberalism, which makes no sense because neoliberalism already exists. Like you can go be a neoliberal and for what it's worth, I have no problem with neoliberalism. In fact, I did an episode with Jeremiah Johnson from the Neoliberal Project where we discussed the differences and similarities between libertarians and neoliberals. And our differences are stark, but our similarities are very stark too. So, I mean, I don't really understand why you would need to redefine libertarianism as neoliberalism when neoliberalism already exists. I'm not, I'm I'm confused. (laughs) Like the thing you're looking for already has a tent and it's close to our tent. It's next to our tent, but it has its own tent. And it's, for what it's worth, modern Democrats tend to hate neoliberals for reasons I don't thoroughly understand, mainly because I tend to agree with neoliberals more than I tend to agree with anybody currently on the established left or right. But yeah, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm a little baffled. I'm confused. I don't understand where we're going with this because it already exists and it's not libertarianism. Anyway, moving on to number 10. State capacity libertarianism has no problem endorsing higher government and governance, whereas traditional libertarianism is more likely to embrace or at least be wishy-washy towards small corrupt regimes due to some of the residual liberties they leave behind. I'm just going to assume that's a swipe at Chile and Pinochet. (laughs) I see what you did there, Tyler. I I laughed. It's funny. But, I mean... This also comes down to whether you're a minarchist or an anarchist. I mean, minarchists would agree with the idea of having higher quality government and governance. Anarchists do not. I mean, and that's a split within the party. And I I have no problem with it being a split. But it's not... Again, you're kind of so state capacity libertarianism in this particular instance is just small L libertarianism. Like, okay, that, that's again, a thing that already exists and you can go be in that tent if you want to. We, we don't need to redefine all of libertarianism to be that. Number 11. State capacity libertarianism is not non-interventionist in foreign policy as it believes in strong alliances with other relatively free nations when feasible. That said, the usual libertarian problems of intervention because government makes a lot of mistakes bar should still be applied to specific military actions. But the alliances can be hugely beneficial, as illustrated by much of the 20th century foreign policy and today much of Asia, which still relies on Pax Americana. To be clear, when libertarians say that we believe in a non-interventionist foreign policy, we are speaking directly to military involvement in other countries. I don't know of any libertarians who do not at least endorse, if not fully embrace the idea of having peaceful relationships with other countries for reasons of 
trade or migration or just being generally friendly country. That's not what libertarians mean when they mean a non-interventionist foreign policy. We specifically mean what you're talking about right here, that intervention for specific military actions, that the bar should be incredibly high. If that's that's what every libertarian I know interprets that as. If there are other ones, please let me know. But yeah, that's that's not new. I, I thought that was standard libertarian position. I maybe Tyler knows people I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there probably are isolationist libertarians. I don't quite get that. But yeah, moving on. It is interesting to contrast state capacity libertarianism to libertarianism, another offshoot of libertarianism. On most substantive issues, the libertarians may be very close to state capacity libertarians, but the emphasis and focus really matter, and I would offer this partial list of differences. A. The libertarian starts by assuring the left that they favor lots of government transfer programs. The state capacity libertarian recognizes that demands of mercy are never ending, that economic growth can benefit people more than transfers, and within the government sphere, it is willing to emphasize an analytical, cold-hearted comparison between government discretionary spending and transfer spending. Discretionary spending may well win out at many margins. I'm not quite sure of these libertarians of which Cowan speaks, but state capacity libertarianism, as defined in this particular section, is again, neoliberalism. That's what neoliberalism is. Neoliberalism believes very much in capitalism and markets and the fact that economic growth would benefit people more than just having state control and state distribution of benefits. But neoliberals do also still believe in a fairly strong safety net. They do still believe in a fairly strong welfare state that does take care of the disadvantaged, the poor, stuff like that. Again, that already exists. That's a neoliberal. I, I don't, I, we, we don't need to redefine libertarianism that way. And in fact, you're probably not going to find, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know who this libertarian is. Anyway, moving on. B. The polarizing left is explicitly opposed to a lot of capitalism and de facto standing in opposition to state capacity due to polarization, which tends to thwart problem solving. The polarizing left is thus a bigger villain for state capacity libertarianism than it is for libertarianism. For the libertarians, temporary alliances with the polarizing left are possible because both oppose Trump and other bad elements of the right wing. It is easy, maybe too easy, to market libertarianism to the left as a critique and revision of libertarian and conservatives. I'm not sure who exactly Cowan is referring to here by the polarizing left, but yes, there is an element of the left that is very anti-capitalist, and within that subset, there are those on the left who do understand that properly implemented that socialism slash communism is anarchism. I mean, it is, it does directly call for the abolition of the state. So yes, if you were somebody on the left who did actually understand what the end game is of communism as directed by Marx, it's never turned out that way, we know, but that was the original plan, then yeah, you would stand in opposed to state capacity because that's, that's supposed to be the end game is that the state's not supposed to exist. So 
I, I suppose, obviously, that would be a pretty big villain for state capacity libertarianism, but then that would be every anarchist would be a villain for state capacity libertarianism. Of which, like I said, there's an awful lot of anarchists in the libertarian movement right now. And so, yeah, you're, you're going to make an enemy not only of those people on the left, but those within this party who hold those views that the state is either corrupt illegitimate, or for whatever reason, should not exist. I, I don't think you could quite ignore that whole wing of the party and still use the word libertarianism, because they're going to reject that out of hand, obviously. So, um, as far as the libertarians temporarily uh, having alliances with the polarizing left because of Trump, I guess, I don't know. It's just this left libertarian shit that people keep telling me about. I keep seeing these battles and I'm just like, I don't, I don't care. I don't fucking care. Like this, the the whole, if you're framing your whole damn life around Trump, I mean, especially in the realm of political philosophy, get a life. <laughs> Figure your shit out. This man's not going to be here for forever. Maybe get some bedrock principles that don't revolve around him. That's all I'm saying. But I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't even know what else to say to that, but what, what, what? Anyway, C, libertarianism, Will Wilkinson made the mistake of expressing enthusiasm for Elizabeth Warren. It is hard to imagine a state capacity libertarian making this same mistake since so much of Warren's energy is directed towards tearing down American business. Ban fracking? Really? Send money to Russia, Saudi Arabia, lose American jobs, and make climate change worse all at the same time? Nope. I mean, <laughs> Elizabeth Warren is the weirdest capitalist I have ever heard of in my entire life because for somebody who insists on being a capitalist, she sure has a real funky way of showing it. <laughs> but I don't, I don't understand why libertarians endorse candidates that they do. I don't really know of any that support Elizabeth Warren. I mean, everybody seems to hate her. But, yeah. I mean, I uh, Will Wilkinson can endorse whoever the hell he wants. I don't care. It's not my business. But, yeah. I don't... This is, so much of this just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why? Why do we need to redefine libertarianism in this particular way? Like, it honestly, it really seems to be the exact opposite of the direction that libertarianism is trending. But... Let's go ahead and finish the piece. D. State capacity libertarianism is more likely to make a mistake of, say, endorsing high-speed rail from L.A. to San Francisco, if indeed that is a mistake, and decrying the ability of U.S. government to get such a thing done. I think the and in there is supposed to be than. So, I mean, why, why do you need the state to do that? I mean, if a private company wants to build a high-speed rail from L.A. to San Francisco, go for it. You you got the money. You can get the land grants. Fuck it. Go for it. Build it. Build build a high-speed rail to nowhere. So long as you're not using taxpayer dollars, I don't care. And whether that's a good idea, I don't know. I would like a high-speed rail between Atlanta and New York City because that would personally benefit my life. But this this is where it comes down to, I think, a lot of the difference between this proposed idea and libertarianism is that libertarians don't oppose certain things just on GP. We oppose using the state 
or taxpayer money to do the thing. Like if somebody else wants to do the thing privately, then go for it. Do it. it. That's you're not you're not understanding what we're opposed to. We're not opposed to the high speed rail existing. We're opposed to taxpayers having to pay for it. That's the problem. That's where we have a problem. So, I, 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 anyway. Which mistakes are they most likely to commit is an underrated way of assessing political philosophies. It's a way to assess political philosophies. I don't know if it's underrated. I would prefer to go with the party that I don't think is going to make mistakes, even though I am a pragmatist and I know if those are the options on the table, I guess that is a very pragmatic way of looking at it, I suppose. But I, I don't know. There's just... that that's, that's almost the argument that people make when they are a libertarian but still vote for either Republican or Democratic candidates is that, well, I'm going to pick the one of two of these that I think will not fuck up the most. And I'm just like, well, there's a third option here. You could vote for that option that is supposedly better to you than option A or option B. Like, I, I don't I don't understand that line of thought, especially if you are somebody who wants this movement to grow and actually wants us to gain some kind of power. Well, at some point, you're going to have to start picking option C when it really matters. So, almost done here. You will note the influence of Peter Thiel on state capacity libertarianism, although I've never heard him frame it the issue this way. Furthermore, which ideas survive well in internet debate has been an important filter on the evolution evolution of the doctrine. That point is under-discussed and for all sorts of issues, and it may get a blog post of its own. I would highly welcome that blog post. I would love to know what Cowan thinks about that, because that is something that I have talked about frequently as far as reach and influence and trying to get more people into the party and how exactly you reach out to more people. And yes, the internet is the way to do it now, honestly. I mean, it's the cheapest, easiest way to reach the widest amount of people. So this idea of how exactly doctrine would evolve to fit into being able to be done in an internet debate, I could could see very good ways and very bad ways in which that could go down. But if and when that blog post ever exists, I will gladly discuss that one too. So anyway... I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up because we made it to the end of the piece. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I, I, I'm, no, mm-mm. I, I just don't, I don't understand this idea at all. I find it very confusing. I find it very opposite of the way that the party is going. And not to mention what you're looking for already exists in the neoliberal tent. If you want to go be a neoliberal, cool, go do it fine. But I don't understand why we need to redefine libertarianism to be something that already exists. Like That doesn't really make any sense to me. Anyway, I wanted to highlight this piece because, like I said, I feel like it's something that is certainly worth discussing, obviously. But it's just, hmm, it's a weird idea. The whole thing is just weird to me. So anyway, now you know about it too. Feel free to discuss amongst yourselves. I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up at this point. 
As usual, if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care, and until next time.